0: Risks are the consequences of an action, an event that is reasonably likely to undermine, threaten goals or objectives that have been determined. There are things you can do or stop doing to increase enterprise value that are counterintuitive and will increase the value of your business.
1: Alistair, thanks so much. This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast. And what we're doing today is we're doing a deep dive continuation with Sean Hutchinson, CEO, partner with SVA Value Accelerators, and Alistair Stewart. He's the manufacturing practice leader from SVA Value Accelerators. This is the continuation of the SVA podcast, where we're going to dig deeper, and we're going to talk about rapid risk reduction. Alistair? let
0: us know.: Bob, thank you. Hello, everybody. Risks are out there in a variety of categories, and most business owners and people working in the business become a little desensitized to them. And you can think of risks as being in a broad spectrum of categories, strategic risk, compliance risk, operational risk, financial risk, and reputational risk. Those are five broad categories. And we can also consider that risks exist within a business and risks exist outside Of a business. And if we look at how businesses are valued, if we look at the worth of a business, it's pretty obvious to financial investors and pretty opaque to owners and employees that reducing risk represents tremendous opportunity to increase the value of a business, particularly the transferable value of a business. So we can look at, say, strategic risk. Strategic risk is something that threatens the outcomes that a business has chosen to pursue. And when you put it in those terms, I think most owners, there's a little bit of an eye-opener there. Are we changing our outcomes? Do we understand the threats that compromise our ability to realize those outcomes what might those risks those threats be and we can go down the list of compliance if that matters to the industry that you're in operational financial and reputational and a fairly straightforward discussion on those topics will reveal the tremendous amount of business value of enterprise value that's threatened by inattention to these existential matters
2: I think that in these three categories of how to increase the value of the business, increasing earnings, reducing risk and increasing marketability, those broad categories, a lot of business owners and their teams are going to focus on increasing earnings as kind of an instinctual way to increase the value of a business. That's understandable. That's where a lot of resources go. But when we see that big category of things that you have to do to reduce risk or should do, could do, should do, will do to reduce risk. Less attention, as Alistair points out, is typically paid to those things, and yet they can have a dramatic effect immediately, a dramatic effect on the economic enterprise value, transferable enterprise value, and we can add value. I think what people need to realize, what owners might tune in on here, is that we can add value to a business pretty dramatically without adding $1 of revenue and $1 of profit. Those things in the beginning of a value acceleration process actually have less effect on value, those increases in earnings, increases in revenue. And in fact, and I'll ask Alistair to speak to this, they may counterintuitively lessen the value of a business depending on how the dollars are earned. So this is about the quality of the revenue, the quality of the profit. And Alistair, maybe you could expand on that.
0: Yeah, thank you, Sean. That's absolutely right. It's not uncommon that an existential threat to a small business is undue or over-reliance on owner or owners. It could mean, for example, that the owner of the business has critical customer relationships from which the majority of revenue or profits are derived. It could also mean that the owner of the business maintains the most critical supplier relationships both of these are areas for risk let's look at customers for example you could have a key customer relationship that is owned exclusively by the owner generates some profits perhaps not the best profits perhaps by inattention, attention acceptable profits and It's all about the owner's relationship with that customer. Well, we think about transferable enterprise value. We think about risk in that relationship. And if that owner transfers the relationship to the organization, right, transfers it from the individual to the organization, we now have a whole bunch of people who are capable of managing that customer relationship. I have a real-world example. I'm working with a client today to de-risk. They had uh, 40% of their business with one critical customer who was very price sensitive. And there was a belief that the benefits of volume outweighed the sins of price concessions. The customer came back and said, you know, we, are, we like you so much. We'd like to give you more business. The owner invested a non-trivial amount of time and personal energy and resource into winning price conceded extra volume where we now have 60% of the revenue, 52% of the profit coming from one customer and the entire relationship is exclusively owned by the business owner. That's a tremendous, tremendous risk to enterprise value. Now we could look at the other end of the value chain or towards the other end of the value chain and look at supplier risk. And one can immediately understand that managing supplier relationships could be at the very top of the organization the responsibility of the owner. And there is often a tendency for relationships to forgive performance. We'd like to see performance measured in terms of delivery quality and cost and an objective team are going to look at that perhaps an owner who just feels a personal connection to the supplier may not be focused on those kinds of metrics and will forgive performance sins and so we move on not understanding that the inattention to those matters continues to increase the risks to enterprise value and both of those factors on the supplier end and on the customer end related to undue reliance on the owner have nothing to do with the organization's focus on driving growth, or if we're going to market, putting together a book to tell the story about the company.
1: Alistair, do you think that the owners are, you know, in your experience, are aware
0: of these risks? Bob, that's a great question. I think they are just unaware, right? Because it's business as usual. I think of this as driving at 32 miles an hour in a 25 mile an hour speed zone, right? They become accustomed to it. And so it's habitual. And it's not unless and until we have a conversation about transferable value that they become sensitized to the risky behaviors that they've habituated over probably decades. And the one that I think is most interesting of the five risk categories, this idea of strategic risk, right? So strategy in business is a plan to capture, create, and sustain value. And without that plan, which many small business owners don't have, and the few that have a strategy, right, often fail to, execute the strategy, but when you think of strategy in those terms, there are risks which threaten those outcomes. Well, now we're starting to have a meaningful conversation. And then how will we understand that risk? There's two elements to any risk that an owner needs to understand deeply. What is the potential impact to value? And what is the likelihood of that impact occurring? When we start to have a conversation about the impact and the likelihood, now we're starting to think differently about enterprise value and what threatens enterprise value, particularly the transferability. It's not unless and until we understand that enterprise value is significantly threatened that we have these meaningful conversations. If we're not thinking about enterprise value, if we're just thinking about the business as an ATM for the owner or an enabler of lifestyle or just business as usual, then we're probably not moving in the right direction. And you know, we move in the direction of our conversations. And a conversation about risk is a very, very valuable conversation for business owners and their management teams to have and to continue to have.
2: I think there are four things that I would emphasize that Alistair has been talking about. One, you know, there's this concept of whale hunting in the sales and business development process. So, you know, you talk about going out and getting the big customer, that's going to be the game changer. right? So, so the instruction, the strategy to that team is go find the customer that's going to immediately double our revenues. Well, there are a couple of things that are likely to happen in that one, the customer concentration problem, right? So, Maybe we were already doing business with that customer and they and they wanted to expand it. So they went from, you know, a comfortable 10% of our revenues with one customer to 45 or 50% of our revenues from one customer. The sales team is excited because they did exactly what they were asked to do. They went out and they found a big customer. They expanded an important strategic relationship, but they created customer concentration. The chances are good that the transferable value of the company fell. And in some cases, the company became non-transferable as a result of that. The owner reliance issue, the owner may own that relationship. They may have been involved in the whale hunting. They may have been key and they will continue to be key. So the customer is doing business with the business, but also business with the owner. If that's the case and the relationship is not distributed in the organization, again, value has fallen. They get kind of a double whammy there, right? Now, the third thing that's happening in that relationship is smaller businesses typically do not have what Michael Porter would call pricing power in the marketplace, right? They're doing business with a bigger company. They're not going to drive the price. And in order to get that bigger deal, they may have to discount, right? Discounting is a very, very dangerous execution in terms of risk management. So the sales team goes out and said, well, you know, if we knock 10% off that deal or 15% off that deal, we can get it. So the top line is going to increase. The gross margin is going to go down. The net margin is going to go down. And looking at it from the outside as an investor, if you want to take that, you know, we want the owner to flip and look at their business through the eyes of an investor, that deal just became much less attractive. We might have better top line, but we got worse bottom line. We might have better top line, but we've got all these risks. And any investor is going to say, all right, I like the financial profile of the business or some things about it, but what's going to get in the way of me actually realizing that potential. And the risks are what they're going to really pay attention to. The fourth thing that I would put out that I would point to that Alistair was talking about is not every risk is an important enough risk to focus on. So the way that we say that he was talking about impact and likelihood, right? You can score both of them. You could score them on a scale of what? Six?
0: I mean, that's a conversation with every owner, perhaps a scale of one to five. We can evaluate the likelihood and the severity, perhaps on a five-point scale, right? Then we do some math. There will always be risks that we can't manage. And when we do that math, we can say, okay, these are the risks, the likelihood and the impact of which exceed an unacceptable threshold, and we're going to start to manage that risk. And that means identifying how today, if at all, we control that risk, how we monitor that risk. An example, we talked about customer concentration, right? You can go into your CRM system and you could evaluate customers by profit dollars and look at who is the primary owner of the relationship with those accounts, with those clients, for example. But anyway, once we establish a monitoring method for the risk, then we get it into saying, okay, who is going to monitor the risk? We've got a monitoring method. Right, It's who in our CRM system is making all the updates on relationship conversations, interactions, mm-hmm. contracts, proposals, business fulfillment. And we can monitor that. right? But who is going to do that? Who, on a monthly basis, is going to provide a client relationship report of interactions by person within the organization, within the management team? And then we can establish a limit. Right, we could say, we don't want any more than 30% of our A customers managed by the owner. Okay, well, right now we're at 87%. That is a 57% opportunity to reduce undue reliance of the owner of key customer revenue and profit contribution. And we can set a limit. In that case, I set a number. That's a discussion with the advisory team, the management team. And then what do we do? What actions do we put in place when we have an out-of-control condition? And that could be, well, in the next 60 days, no A customer interaction will occur without the introduction of one or two others from the company's team. Could be just the straight sales leader on the supply side, right? Could be the purchasing manager. Could be the person responsible for a value stream if the company sufficiently matured on its operational excellence journey to understand value streams and we also need to identify what actions out of control and what time frame we'll have for putting those actions in place you know it's a fairly straightforward process of understanding the impact the probability the acceptable or unacceptable risk levels what existing controls we have in place how we will monitor Existential threats to enterprise value that the math of impact and probability represent. Who's going to be responsible at a monitoring level, right? Because now we're monitoring metrics. What's our limit? And what's our action plan for out-of-control risks that exceed the limit? This is not intellectually challenging. It just requires a constant conversation about risks to value and a focus on de-risking the organization.
2: Sean, you got anything to add? Alistair's absolutely right that the accountability, the dynamic nature of risk, right? It's not static. So it can be not so risky one quarter. And then upon reassessment and this kind of vigilance that Alistair's talking about monitoring and risk management, you know, quarter number two, it could be a completely different story, That might be external forces. Alistair talked about internal, external. External, sometimes out of your control, but you still need to be aware of it. Internal, more in your control, still need to be aware of it. But that vigilance and that bias for action around risk management is really important. It's not just about creating a scorecard. As he pointed out, that's a fantastic part of the process. Let's identify it and track it. And when we're talking about not all risks matter as much, So, you know, manage the metrics that matter the most. That's what we refer to sometimes as big rocks versus little rocks. You want to be putting your resources as a company, if you're going to do risk management, you want to direct your resources towards big, impactful, likely risks, which we would call the big rocks, what Alistair is referring to as existential risks, the things that if they were to emerge or remain present in the organization over a longer period of time, could put it out of business, right? That's the existential piece of this. Those are big rocks, right? And the management team and the strategy and the execution in the company has to be aware of that and attack it with the right resources at the right time. If you spend all your time pummeling away with your hammer at the tiny rocks, and you can, you know, bash these things into, you know, fine gravel all day long, but if the big rocks are still there, then... Your value drivers, the things that are driving value in your company, are facing such headwinds from those value killers and those risks that you can't get the boulder up the mountain. And if you do get the boulder up the mountain, like Sisyphus, it might just roll right back down. And now you're in that spiral of, well, we were managing, but we didn't actually act enough to get it out of the organization, keep it out of the organization. That's what we call ring fencing, the risk, Right. So you identify value, you defend value by de-risking, that's step number two. Once you have minimized those things, you got to set up a boundary that keeps them out. And that's what's difficult. That vigilance is that boundary. It's a way of monitoring and keeping that risk out of the organization. I wanted to make sure that I didn't forget to
1: say, for the folks that are going like, that sounds like my company, I need to talk to these guys. What are the ways to reach out to you guys via social media?
2: LinkedIn is a great way to get to us. We're really active on LinkedIn. I have a page, Sean P. Hutchinson is my LinkedIn identity. Alistair Stewart has a LinkedIn page as well. We have a company page, SV Value Accelerators. You can reach out to us in any of those channels, certainly through our website, buildvaluetoday.com. is a great way to reach us. So I'm the business owner listening
1: and going like, wow, that sounds like me. And so I want to go down the road of starting this process. What should I expect when you guys walk through the door or engage? What are the first things that occur?
2: What we call discovery. So we're going to sit down with all of our clients in the beginning and try to get a baseline on the company. We're going to get a baseline on probably eight, nine, ten different dimensions in the company that range from their ability to... Do good strategy, execute good strategy, operational value drivers and value killers. We're going to rank those things. But the most valuable part, I think, of the conversation with owners and management teams is the conversation itself. We can capture data and we can put, you know, red, yellow, green on it all day long. But in the conversations, we capture what we call enriched data. So enriched data is where, in our opinion, the real story is. So being able to interview clients face-to-face, interview other stakeholders in the organization gives us a good picture of what's going on. And then we're going to talk about what do we do in order to make all those things that are underperforming in an organization that are not creating transferable enterprise value are addressed. And the first thing we're going to address in that process are A couple of things, but risk reduction, what we're talking about, rapid risk reduction is what we're talking about today, is one of our early value acceleration sprints. So it goes to what we're going to do in discoveries, identify value in the organization, identify things that are killing, driving, value opportunities. We're going to look at the total holistic picture there, and then we're going to begin to do value acceleration sprints, one of which very early in the process is going to be rapid risk reduction. So we're going to help the company and their management team defend, right? Think of that as the defense. We're going to create an immune system in the company around risk. So I can see it, identify it, and eject it from the organization as soon as possible. And then everything after that is the upswing of value opportunity, right? Because we've created that platform on which value opportunity can be built and captured. You know as well as I do, existential risks in an organization are basically like standing on a burning platform. If you try to build on that, then good luck because it's going to burn up and you're going to fall. (laughs) I almost said die, but (laughs) that may be a little bit hard.
0: And you know, Bob, there's good news for owners and their management teams and the entire workforce in these conversations about risk. But we are asking owners and their management teams to work differently. And in many, many cases, this can be considered as a set of tactics, which instead of constantly chasing B customers, for example, and spending tons of engineering and delivery resources on business that is okay revenue and negative profit, right? How about if we manage risks, and just work 45 hours a week or 50 hours a week instead of increasing risks by working hard for 60 hours a week. It puts the organization in a more secure position, and it increases the work satisfaction on the leadership management. It seems like to me that this process
1: is going to happen one of two ways. Either the owner is going to drive it, or the potential acquirer is going to identify it one of the two things are going to happen and eventually the data is going to come out either way
0: it absolutely comes out in diligence right you can have a number in the letter of intent and you know 30 days later in after some diligence that number could be halved i'm working with a client right now who's looking at a 55% decline from the number in the LOI to the post diligence number and a significant majority of the reduction is due to the enterprise risk that the owner had become complacent over a number of years. And diligence, while very effective, right, can open up the gap between price and value. And as everybody, I think, who's done research on transaction failure will understand, right, a leading cause of transaction failure is the gap between price and perceived value. What was the reaction of that owner? Tremendous unhappiness. Uh,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a million dollar problem, right? So, yeah.
0: Yeah, potentially that owner having to sacrifice two years of his life to get to the risk reduced number that's acceptable to both parties in the transaction. Now, probably not going to sell to this seller, right? But he's going to have to spend probably two years, I think a good 24 months, de-risking to get to the number that he wants. Now, I'm pretty confident that if we'd started rapid risk reduction two years ago, the LOI number itself would have been higher and wouldn't have been very much reduced. But now we're in catch-up mode. And unfortunately, busted deals are rarely unknown.
1: I think about this, you know, and, and we've talked about it before. That doing all this stuff, you know, it sounds like I got to go get a booster shot or something bad or a root canal, but the reality of risk reduction is just really good business practices. I
2: think so. Yeah.
0: At the very highest level, transition readiness is, in quotes, just good business, right? And if we recognize, as Sean correctly observed a few minutes ago, right, that rapid risk reduction. Right is an early element of increasing your transition readiness. Well, it's just more good business earlier. You know, when you work with a small business owner
1: and they're talking about getting ready, what's the typical first or second behavior that you see them engage in when they're trying to get their company ready for sale
2: before you guys get involved? What do they typically do? They try to dress up the financial performance of the organization. I'll tell you a story that comes secondhand, actually, from a trusted source. So owner drives growth for a long time and then knows, but the management team doesn't know yet that, but the CFO does, that he is preparing to sell the company. He's got a two to three year plan, right? So what does he do? He starts taking money out of growth and putting it in profit, right? So he says, we're not driving growth anymore. We're driving profit margin. That's good actually. I don't mind that. I actually think that a more profitable, smaller company is better than a bigger, less profitable company. And a lot of people just drive the top line, drive the top line. The assumption is we're going to grow our way out of margin or other risks, right, that are happening. And shrinking the size of a company in order to be more profitable on the financial side can be not only counterintuitive, but uncomfortable. You think about it in the terms of a community How do you explain, once word is out because people know it, how do you explain, hey, my company is going to be smaller than it was? What's the interpretation of that in the external right world? It could be the company is failing when, in fact, the owner is making the moves to make it more profitable. That's okay. But most of the time, it focuses first on the financial profile of the company prior to taking it to market rather than reducing the risk in order to capture additional value that may be hidden in the business, unlocking it through risk reduction gives you that, you know, you're paid a multiple on risk management that exceeds, in most cases, the multiple that you would get for financial performance. So it's more valued in the marketplace by an investor. Risk reduction, a low-risk business will be valued more than, you know, gaining a few points on your
0: profit margin. John's absolutely right, Bob. The very first conversation is, well, what's my business worth, right? Purely thinking about manufacturing. I mean, I don't know much about manufacturing, and I know almost nothing about everything else, but my decades of experience in manufacturing have led me to these observations. Business owners understand that the value of the business is, in significant part, the multiple established in the market times EBITDA. Right, Earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation and amortization. And one can think of EBITDA being a proxy for free cash flow, right? It's not identical, but they're kissing cousins. And most owners that I work with believe that EBITDA is the lever and the multiple is not something that they can influence. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we start talking about why the multiple is the multiple, right, the cost of money, the liquidity penalty, the size penalty, both of which are penalties that they can't do anything to avoid when you're small privately held, right? The element of the multiple that is most significant is company-specific risk, and every EBITDA dollar is multiplied by whatever that represents, right? So let's say the multiple is 4, which means the risk-adjusted cost of capital is 25%, Money's 5%, a little bit of size and liquidity penalty, let's get you to 12 or so, or 13%. That leaves 12 or 13%, right? 50% of the multiple, right, is represented by company-specific risk. Yeah, but, you know, if we had more customers, no. I don't know if you need more customers or not. I do know that you need to manage and reduce company-specific risk because every profit dollar gets multiplied by whatever that is. If it's four, that's great, right?
2: I'll tell you one of my pet peeves, and it goes right to what Alistair was just talking about. I hate the phrase, my company is worth what the buyer will pay for it. I hate it because I think it's completely untrue. And I think it demotivates an owner and their team from being an active participant in the creation of value. If your company is worth what the market will pay for it, why try? Because when you take it to market, the market is just going to tell you what they're willing to pay for. It might be low, it might be high. It just depends on external conditions. I think you can influence the multiple. And I think the biggest influence of the multiple is going to be the level of risk in your company. The more there is, the lower the multiple is going to become. And the jumps in upside of multiple, exponential kind of leaps up that ladder are going to come not from adding dollars to the bottom line necessarily, but by reducing the risk in the organization. I know I've been hammering away on this. I feel like I'm beating the horse, but this is such an important issue for everybody to plug into is that you could be putting all of your resources into driving the wrong result, right? If you focus 100% on driving earnings in your organization, great, you should be focusing on earnings. But if you ignore all this other stuff, you've missed the value opportunity. That's where the exponential value opportunity is. The part of our job as value accelerators is to help our clients see it and manage it over time. We're not going to tell people what to do. We don't know as much as our clients know about their business and we never will. But the skills that we do have are acting as a pair of eyes, a set of eyes that can see risk potentially more objectively in our organization and help help organizations solve it objectively for the right reasons.
1: You know, I think there's a real disconnect. What people see is worst in class, average and best in class in the same industry group. Mm -hmm. I think about, you know, your discussion of a de-risked company Mm -hmm. versus a risky company and the value gap, you know, as best in class. We talked about that in the past out in La Jolla.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sometimes it's, difficult to kind of see in the numbers, right? In the what I would call quantitative benchmarks, right? Mm -hmm. We can go in and we can get benchmarks on a company in a particular industry, a particular size, and we can get those with some reliability, depending on how big the industry is, over a period of time. So I could say, hey, my client sets up and they've got this much cash on hand and they've got this much receivables and you know here's their you know, sort of working capital and things like that. And how does that compare to their peers in the industry during the same period? So we can get a little bit of, you know, touch points on that. The qualitative stuff, the company specific risk is a harder area to benchmark because it's not really published. Mm -hmm. Right. So we talk about risk reduction, but are you doing risk reduction better than your peers That's difficult to determine, and that's part of the challenge of valuing, or I would say, and I think Alistair would also, pricing, right? Pricing a business in that sort of investment value or market value category because you don't know what you're getting into until you lift the hood and get in there. There is no transparency. We can't look at it like you look at a public company because there's nothing published. I don't know what he's going to put out an annual report. You can't really pick up enough data to compare to other companies. So you have to judge it once you're in there. And everybody's going to have their own objective standard on how much risk they're willing to bear when they purchase or invest in a company. Let me just make one other point, because I know Alistair's got some good ones there. (laughs) You know, there's another version of risk that people need to be aware of, I think, in situations where, as an example, they are transferring their company to the next generation in a family-owned business. So in that case, we may not be talking about the pricing or the value in the same way that we're talking about it in the third party investment market. In this particular case, I think the motivations are you want more value than risk transferring to the next generation. I can't think of a parent, at least a healthy one that would think about transferring a lot of risk to their children via the business. Why would they want to do that? But often they'll transfer earnings power, right, through the financial performance of the business. But inherent in that business, sort of underlying that earnings power, maybe some concessions or some moves that were made by the owner or management that constituted a lot of risk. And now they've kind of hung a rock around the next generation who are going to have to deal with those things. Maybe they got kicked down the road, right? The can got kicked, or they just didn't really focus on that stuff. Look, I would rather inherit a business which is less risky and somewhat less profitable with greater earnings potential, but a lower risk profile than I would a business that's just knocking it out of the park, but has done all the things that are injecting risk into the business along the way. So I think from an intergenerational standpoint, focusing on risk may be even more important because that risk now hangs around at the Thanksgiving dinner table. That's not a pleasant experience as we can all imagine.
0: Sure. It's absolutely right, Bob. You know, if you think of risks, at the most fundamental level as threats to chosen outcomes, right? No parent says, I want to make sure that my great-grandchildren leave college burdened with student loan debt. A couple of things also on earlier observations, Bob, you made. You're talking about best in class. And Sean talked about the perils of victim thinking in that the market sets the price for my business. (coughs) I'm working with a client today where it's a very, very frothy market. The business that he has been in is of significant interest to primarily financial investors who have too much money and too few good choices about where to put it to use. Multiples in that niche are 6.75%. The potential acquirer came back with a price which represents 2.75 multiple and the gap is exclusively company specific mm-hmm. risks the invisibility and even when they became visible the lack of clarity right in understanding the risks right so first of all my client didn't know they were there and once he knew they were there they weren't Fully formed he was looking at rocks out there in front of the ship in the mist but really didn't understand What he was seeing now. I do want to just bring us back to one Word in the topic of the webinar, which we might want to focus a little on and that's rapid Mm -hmm. So we're not asking people to work more We're not asking an owner to do 70 hours a week instead of 60 hours a week We're actually asking an owner to do 55 hours a week instead of 60 hours a week or 50 hours a week, instead of 60 hours a week, by identifying threats to a chosen outcome, threats in five categories, strategic, compliance, operational, financial, and reputational, threats that could have their root causes inside the business or outside the business. Tariffs and trade policy are external threats. Mm -hmm. The health, of a chain-smoking, hard-drinking production manager are inside the business. That's an operational risk right there, right? And just do, in very short order, the basics of identifying the risks, right? And these are the discussions. We move in the direction of our conversations. And when we talk about these things, now we have something to put on paper. If it's not written down, it doesn't exist, right? And then assess the impact to the business and the likelihood of that threat materializing. And then we, right, we go through, we say, okay, what are acceptable risk levels? What are our existing controls? How are we going to monitor them? Who's going to monitor them? What limit can we tolerate? Are we prepared to tolerate? What actions will we have for out of control conditions, which leads us into a bias for action and the actions to which we're biased reduce risk. reduce the threats to our chosen outcomes, and we do those actions instead of winning yet another B customer. It drives
1: the sales effort, doesn't it? Yep. Sean, what are we missing in this component? I mean, you know, I love this particular discussion. It's concrete and identifiable and actionable and measurable. And yeah, I get all fired up about that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, and I agree with that. I mean, I think one of the nice things about this particular 90 day sprint in our value accelerator is that you do see immediate results, right? You're not waiting two years to figure out whether it worked. You're actually seeing your company work better as a result right off the bat. I think you see it. I think you'll see it also soon after, if not immediately in the financial statements. You'll see it reflected in the numbers, those metrics that you're going to figure out, but I also think you're becoming a more self-aware company. Look, it's not just the owner that's supposed to be looking out for this stuff. Ultimately, if risk reduction becomes a part of your culture, it becomes part of the DNA of the company, everybody's watching out for it. And that's what you have to have. It goes to the leadership model that we talk about, the leader-leader model, where everybody becomes a leader in risk management and identifying and keeping out of the organization. They practice vigilance on their own. But there is one important thing here that Alistair brought up that I think In the beginning, companies need to be very precise about the risks that they can see right now, right? So you don't want to be chasing everything. You want to be as precise and vigilant as you can. But there are also risks that you probably think are just too far-fetched, right? So how many soybean farmers out there would have thought until it happened that there would be such a tariff on soybeans that literally – 70 to 90% of their of their soybean crop that they were going to sell to China is now off the market. They're done, right? They're just kind of cooked during this period. And I don't think anybody that was monitoring risk out there would have said, hey, we might get a tariff that just drives us out of business. Because it wasn't really on the table. In Napa, close to where I used to live in San Francisco, you know, nobody You remember, I think it was two or three years ago, where those horrible fires came through. And the wineries in that area, the vineyards, were not prepared for that, with the exception of a few that had significant fire suppression systems in place just in case. Nobody else out there thought to themselves that Napa Valley could, to a large extent, burn in a very short period of time. And those fires were atomic bomb-level destruction, So now you've got residual risks that come out of that, that nobody really was prepared for. So, you know, you can trap yourself into thinking, well, that's not really a risk. You can trap yourself into the likelihood piece, which is nobody would have thought that a Napa fire with that much destructive power was going to be likely. But that doesn't mean that you don't prepare for it. And the vineyards that had fire suppression strategies in place survived pretty well when other vineyards lost everything. If you think of the vineyards, those are old-growth vineyards in Naple Valley. They don't just get replanted and come back. That's a special kind of grape growing there. And so it's going to take generations to recover from that, if ever.
1: You know, I think about when there's an event that occurs that you've thought about it and you know what steps you'll take, when and if the event occurs. You just know up front. That's right. And if you see an event happen somewhere else on the planet and you go, wow, what would happen if it happened here? Don't sit there and do nothing. That's right. You know, we did the same thing in Colorado. We had the big fire in the high country. And I looked at it and go, geez, wonder what would happen if we had a fire in our neighborhood? So I went yeah, and got all that shit really. out. And guess what? Two years later, we had a fire in town and burned within 200 yards of my house. That's and right. That's why right. I forget. You guys have an exciting development coming the first part of 2019 that you're rolling right. out a course.
2: Yeah, we're rolling out one, an online learning platform where owners, and in fact, owners not just in the late stage kind of baby boomer category where they're preparing potentially for some kind of ownership transition, but a platform which can address that audience as well as younger business owners or even people who are thinking about getting into business. One, it's an educational resource and it's also a place to meet other business owners. You can become part of a cohort. To that end, we're starting. A number of different markets around the United States, a pilot program around what we call mastermind groups, which are groups of 10 owners that work through value acceleration at a high level to create a transition roadmap for themselves over a year's period. So they're going to get pieces of our full value accelerator and they're going to build that roadmap with their peers. They're going to prepare to execute it. So this is, I think, one of the first times, certainly, It's one of the first times that our value accelerator has been delivered within this format. I think the first groups are going to be in the Chicago area. So if anyone's interested in learning more, they will be face-to-face. They're not done online right now. And Alistair, I think you're thinking about starting some up in Montana as well.
0: Yeah, the city of Bozeman is very interested in ensuring the continued economic vitality of our area, and we'll be bringing those programs here to fastest-growing small city in the state in the early part of next year? What struck me is
1: many business owners just don't know what they don't know. And most of them haven't sold multiple businesses. So most of the business owners, this is their first lap around the track in selling their business. And I don't think they've had a potential investor or buyer dig through their shorts to understand what they're missing.
2: Yeah. Well, I think that's true. And conducting preliminary due diligence on yourself, what we would call reverse due diligence is an important part of that preparation and being very, very eyes wide open about what's actually going on in the company. I think owners are really smart about their business and they may see these risks, but they don't know how to prioritize and that getting outside help can be powerful there. And also, they, I think they, in some cases, just don't know how to attack the risk. Mm-hmm. And getting that additional advice can be helpful. Alistair, you got anything else to add to this module?
0: Yeah, I encourage any owner who's looking at their business as a substantial piece of their personal net worth to start exploring how rapid risk reduction can rapidly increase their personal net worth and contribute to other things that may motivate them as business owners, including legacy and transferring it down the generations. Yeah. I think that
1: the biggest mistake an owner listening to this episode could make is not reaching out. I mean, it doesn't cost anything to reach out and ask.
2: I think that's right. And we're happy to, you know, get on the phone or have a zoom call with folks to discuss their specific situation. You know, we talk about the cost of doing nothing. Owners and their teams need to really kind of clue in on that. What is in fact the cost of doing nothing here? It could be small in their opinion. Okay, fine. But in most cases, when we talk to business owners, the cost of doing nothing is high. And in some cases I've had them actually say it's catastrophic. So we have to go. And so, you know, we always help our clients take that first step, which feels, you know, you can get frozen, not really knowing where to start. You can become paralyzed. So our advice is always, well, do one thing. And that thing might be, let's do discovery on our business. Let's find out what's going on. Let's get a second opinion in a sense. And That's a good place to start. Clearly, a good thing. It's powerful.
1: And for the folks that are out there going, well, like, you know, geez, I'm not planning on selling my business anytime soon. And in my rejoinder to that is you just don't know. And so I think that reaching out in in any phase of running your business to an assessment where you are, because if you have divorce that comes through or disability or death of a partner. I says you're going to figure it out pretty quickly at that point. And what's the typical time frame to get ready for sale? About
2: three years? At least. Yeah, I don't think so. We do have triggering clients who want to do it in a short period of time. But, you know, you can only do so much, you know, in a shorter period. And you're going to lose some value as a result of that. So starting early is definitely a hallmark of successful transitions at a higher value.
0: Alistair? I'd add one thing, right? Heart disease is known as the silent killer. And complacency, right? acceptance of unacknowledged invisible risks is a silent killer for any business owner and their business. Mm-hmm. Well, Good. I think that's an appropriate note to wind up this module.
1: <laughs> I appreciate, Sean and Alistair, your commentary and insights.
2: Our pleasure. Thank you, Bob. You Thank bet.
1: you, Bob.